0: Welcome to Oz Property Investors, where you're smart, no BS friends who tell you the most interesting stuff going on in property. Join your host Jeff Miles, former mortgage broker and property developer, alongside Joe Tucker, Director of Property Principles Buyer's Agency, as they interview some of Australia's top property experts and commentators, so we can all become better property investors together.
1: We're live on Os Property Investors. We bring the big names and we have the big fun. And tonight it's about the other people's money. So, how you going, Adam?
2: Hey guys, how are you? Jeez, Hi, mate. So much energy. Sorry, I didn't. I, I should have. should have. Yeah, you you, bit with the energy, but, you yeah. fired off by like a bit of a live wire there. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Sorry, I should give people that morning. But yeah, how you going anyway, Joe, as well? what's What's happening, man?
0: I'm good, mate. I'm good. I'm very good. How are you? How are you, Jeff? More importantly. Oh, more importantly,
1: yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited, man. Just um, just yeah, feeling feeling some good energy about this this session because I love talking property and and this is uh, as as with you, Joe, it is the high, one of the highlights of my week. So maybe I need to get myself some more hobbies. But no, I'm ex- <laughs> I'm I think it's it's super exciting to to think of um sort of topics that are somewhat counter and countercyclical um and we'll sort of maybe we'll unpack some of that but um but yeah who knows where this conversation will go we do have some structure so let's get into it because i want to make these s- sort of uh super valuable and and content packs so but if you're loving it we want to see your questions we want to see your comments give us a like if you're watching on youtube do all that good stuff people whatever you feel whatever you do on youtube so yeah this is going to be a, show. This
0: oh, is is gonna be a super valuable session, like. Other people's money, I think there's a bit of a, um, there's a lot of confusion behind it and a lot of develop, there's a lot of developers out there that hide all of the information, all the good quality stuff behind a paywall or behind their service or something like that. And that's why we wanted to get you, Adam, because you, you give it all away. you just, you're not, you don't sell yep. a course, you've got nothing for sellers. So you can yep. just give us the goods so yeah all i do is develop
2: and uh people want to know how i do it i'm always happy to share you know there's plenty of development sites out there for everyone so there's no need to be keeping your, your your secrets close to your chest or any of that garbage
0: yes i love it that's why we wanted to get you on mate i'm excited for this one um quote of the week jeff what is your quote of the week mate so, uh,
1: in, in, uh, and I wanted to thank Adam for coming on because this is a, almost your dinner time. So it's it's a bit bit early for you. So thanks for coming.
2: Oh, it's okay, on we're, I'm over in Perth, so it's only five thirty for me. So um, we'll wrap up about yeah. seven. And uh, Wednesday night's date night, so my wife's oh, nice uh, told me you. no later than seven, and we're off to dinner. So yeah, we okay, we're, right. good timing. <laughs> okay.
1: So we got to we got to get through these. So my quote, I like to match it, with, marry up with what the topic we're talking about. So my quote this week is: "If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together." So I think that Ooh. that is very uh, topical and very important in these kind of uh, hiring interest environments, particularly. And it's not to say that that joint ventures or other people's money is for everyone, but <laughs> if if you, it is an an alternative or an option. So yeah, it was, that's topical for me. How about you, Joe?
0: Uh, my quote of the week is, um, well, I don't know if you're going to, I don't know if you agree with this one, Jeff, because I thought this was my quote, but you are saying that this may be Steve McKnight's quote um, that is relevant to this. If you put a part-time effort into something, you'll get a part-time result. If you put a full-time effort in, you'll get a full-time result. Um, so is that from Steve McKnight, Jeff? Are we going to, let you want to sort well, this out uh... now? I mean, yeah, he definitely said that very,
2: very regularly. So, it. I, heard so him I don't, I don't know if yeah. you've heard yeah.
1: him say it? Yeah. 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 So yeah. Least, I heard that.
2: Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: yeah. That's that's <laughs> definitely yeah. I, I think if you if you if you if we had Steve on a on a live, which he, he's actually a mentor around, so you probably wouldn't want to mention that to it because he might be like us, oh, Joe. I think that's actually my one. Yeah. You might just
0: hang up the call. <laughs> But anyway. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. It's funny that you've heard him say it as well, Adam. though. <laughs> yeah, you that is very true. I think, I, I think it's poignant as well. Like with development, right? You can, you can, you have. I bet you see so many people, Adam, that that want to dip their toes into development, and they just don't tick all the boxes and they screw it up. Like it's easy to think, oh, I just yeah. put. There's one house here. I want to put two houses here. I'll just do that. But it doesn't. It uh, doesn't always go that clean.
2: Yeah, look, it's a, it's a straightforward concept and the process is straightforward enough, but there's so many little steps. It's complex is probably the way I'd, I'd say it in terms of the number of steps. And if you, unfortunately, with quite a lot of them, if you mess them up, then that could sink the whole thing. So, yeah, the way I, I know what's the sink way of putting it is I could hand anyone a great development site that I've vetted myself, but if you don't really know how to execute it, then you could turn a profit into a loss easily. Yeah, quickly, I'd, yeah, I'd uh,
1: I'd certainly agree with that because I've seen I've seen it firsthand time and time again. People like enthusiastic amateurs, um, and and with all due respect to them. Particularly in a, in a rising market, it's it's very very easy to look like it had to find a profitable deal, and then sort of the market turns, which it has sort of turned, and and next minute you're turning a a, a sort of several hundred thousand dollar profit into something that they haven't factored in a, a key number in the feasibility. So. Yeah. On, on that
2: note, what is what is your uh, what is your quote of the week? I think that's apt. Absolutely- yeah. Well, um, I'm all about risk mitigation, uh, so I love the quote from Warren Buffett about his investing rules. So rule number one: never lose money, and rule number two: don't forget rule number one. So yeah, it's um, obviously you can't always avoid losing money. You know, there's always risk, but uh, it just reminds me to when I'm looking at my strategies. Uh, Development strategy. Thinking about what risk mitigation do I put in place, and making sure that we protect our capital as much as possible. So that if unexpected stuff happens, which it always does, um, you know, you should at least be able to get out with uh, your shirt
0: on. Mm, Yeah, hundred percent. That is a solid rule set to to live by. (laughs) Keep your shirt on. In other words, keep your shirt on.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah, you go, Joe
0: let's do it okay we're back we're going to jump in we're going to jump into our uh, our little sponsored post here but then we will talk and introduce the man the myth the legend that is adam um so let's do it this live session is sponsored by scott agate from hello house scott has created the world's first property negotiation as a service business so what does that mean Well, let's think about it. When was the last time you negotiated on anything over $100, let alone a property that is going to be one of the biggest investments of your life? The vendor, they have a trained negotiator on their side in the form of a real estate agent. That's kind of like you stepping into the ring with Mike Tyson after never training a day of boxing in your life. These guys are trained professionals and that's what they do day in and day out. And this is what Hella House does every single day as well. They negotiate on property to get the best buy price from the real estate agents. Scott Aggett, he's the expert negotiator. He has been in this industry since 1995. He owned and operated three Bell franchises. Scott was the guy that was teaching these real estate agents all these agent games. He knows all of their tricks. Having him on your side is going to give you a massive unfair advantage and literally save you tens of thousands of dollars. Unlike other ways of purchasing property, Scott's incentives are aligned with you, the buyer, meaning the more money he saves you, the more money he makes, which is what you want. You need to have those incentives aligned. Scott has kindly offered our group a massive discount on the retainer fee for his service. So if you're looking to buy your next home or investment property, click the link below to get in touch.
1: So I've actually, uh, I've, I've, I've dropped a link for for Mr. Mister Raggett and Hello House's uh, Get Buyer Ready course, which... Which talks all about these good stuff. So there, there is a ge- very generous discount still going there as well. So check that out because we've had Scott on heaps of times. That's uh, and I, I think negotiation is is all part of the uh, the, the other people's money process as well. So I'm ex- I'm excited. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, maybe maybe we might not. But Adam, let's uh, let's let's talk to you. You sent me. Uh, I, I love the buy you sent me. It it was amazing because I it's it's so succinct. It's fantastic. So. <laughs> You are the founding director at Develop Capital, a co-founder of the the PPD, the Perth property developers. I think you should call it the PPD. I can just imagine a means we throw off that. Um, 11 plus years experience in residential development. So that's um, that's that's a that's a good amount of experience. So I'd be interested to yeah, and 30 million plus in projects with 50 plus investors. And I, I ask you to give you a bit of colours to what you also do in your your, your sort of uh, outside of property because uh, I just yeah, I love to hear what 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 else people get up to. And you 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 run marathons and half marathons as well as there's something else you sent you sent to me that you yeah um, hockey.
2: I like a, yeah. like like to play field hockey. So season's just finished. So yeah, now oh, yeah, I'm yeah, moving to
1: season. Do like, <laughs> or ice, but yeah. So yeah, that's 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 just like a marathon or a half marathon is um, it's pun- absolute punishment. Like it, it can be. I yeah. Well, the, marathons have you
2: well done? if you run the marathon, the half marathon doesn't seem too bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I've, I've, I've run, um, run two marathons and probably about eight halves. So um, yeah. half is probably my preferred distance. It's um, yeah. when you're training for a marathon, it's like having a part-time job. You know, you're putting in probably about 18 hours of of exercise between recovery and stretching and um, strength training as well as, as running. So yeah,
1: what's your um what's your quickest half marathon time? Just quickly,
2: uh, hour forty five. Yeah, an hour forty five. Yeah,
1: yeah so I did. So. I did, did now an 43. Not that it's a competition. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, it yeah, was <laughs> on a completely flat track, though. I, I'd, 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 I'd be lucky. Oh, yeah, I'd,
2: you always pick a flat track for your PB, don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: That was, it was about 30 degrees. It was 30 degrees, though, at 9 a.m. So that's. Yeah, you know, I that was assuming February, they
2: do one in Boston and WA. Lovely, lovely beachside uh, city. And um, you run along the coast with no, not many sand dunes. And yeah, everyone gets their PB down there. Of
1: to go, I have to get WA. So, talking, talking about uh, running. Let's let's talk about. Let's. Uh, I, want, I want to give. I want to get. To, I want to get up and running. So, let's. The first question, or most most times we ask people, is tell us about your first property investment and and how it went and what was it all about. Yeah,
2: so I'll actually tell you about the first property I ever bought, which ended up being an investment and then kickstarted me to where I am now. So, um, back in two thousand eight, I bought my first. Home using my first-time buyer's grant, and I bought a little one-bedroom apartment in a suburb called Victoria Park in Perth, real inner-city suburb, um, lots of apartments and townhouses and things like that, and um, bought bought a little place. uh, And when I was looking for it, I realised that you could buy renovated or unrenovated ones, and the cost difference between them was pretty much the price of... Doing a reno. So, yeah, I bought the unrenovated one for I think about 200000 And And if you paid 20 grand, you could renovate it. And the renovated ones were about two twenty. dollars So, the problem with the way people renovated the houses though is that because it was a cheaper type of property, they always skimp on part of the reno. And so I thought, right. well, I want somewhere nice to live. I'll just buy it and renovate it myself. Um, so that was my little foray into renovating and um, done purely for a, it wasn't as a project, you know, I didn't expect to make any profit, but um, I signed up the offer for the house and um, the this was end of 2008 and the GFC was just hitting and um, the government announced all the stimulus measures and one of the things they announced was they were doubling the first homeowner grant for um Established properties and I just Missed out because I'd signed like a couple of weeks Before but one thing mm-hmm. I've read And they, they still repeat And I think it's true is any change to the First homeowner grant is Inflationary so that Kicked off this massive buying spree because the, the Grant was only doubled for about 12 or 18 months or something And so, so all of a sudden We got all this capital growth so I Saw the value of the property increase 20% in about 12 months. Um, and, yeah, I, I wow. moved into it and renovated it and um, was then thinking about, okay, I've got my own place. What do I do next? What's my next investment going to be? And I initially liked the idea of buy and hold, but one thing I was really worried about was I only had enough money to buy one more property, and if I bought something and it didn't grow, then I'd be stuck. Yeah. And I started reading Stephen Dyke's books funnily enough, we mentioned him earlier, and yeah. he was big on um, – yeah, you know, adding value and doing other stuff as well and what sort of riding ways for growth. And I really didn't want to do any more Renaults, but he you know, he just convinced me by the time I finished reading the book. I remember being quite frustrated with the book because it pissed me off because it was the logic was sound, but I didn't want to do a reno. <laughs> and then I said, yeah. all right, I wanna I'll have to go. My you know, Next purchase would be a reno and I'll I'll buy reno sell. And I didn't have enough money to do it and own my so I had to make the decision to sell that and become a renter and um, mm. cash out. And in hindsight, it worked perfectly because the, the price peaked uh, off this uh, first homeowner grant increase. And uh, I cashed in at, at what was the top. I, I found that out in hindsight. And um, the prices then went down over time because uh, the stimulation wasn't there. Uh but yeah, you know, I'd gone and bought something, done a reno, done well, made my first profit out of that, and that sort of kickstarted my development career.
0: So okay. Well, that's awesome. So you made like a sorry, what did you sell it at?
2: Uh, like two ninety two ninety thousand oh, wow. and I bought it for two hundred and reno all in reno was about two twenty. So yeah, it um yeah, it was nice little um the stars aligned in many ways. Just an example of if you take action sometimes you get a, you can get a bit of a windfall. Yeah. I, I never expected it would grow. I wasn't buying it for a profit. It was just somewhere to live, but um, yeah, it all worked right. out.
0: <laughs> so, so you went straight into development after that. You're like, okay, cool. I can make money in renovation, but I don't want to do that because I don't like picking up the hammer. What does that look like? Because usually people don't just fall into yeah. development straight away. Like talk through that.
2: That's a great question uh, because I use a pretty broad, Um, definition of development i will will add and it's not a traditional thing but i still think a renovation is a form of development because you're improving the land and uh, improving the value of something and then selling it on and um and also the skills if you can buy something renovated and sell it and make a profit that's actually pretty hard to do and uh if somebody I meet someone and they tell me they can do that. Then I know they've got most of the skills they need to be able to move into the traditional form of development of subdivision and, and construction. Um, so I didn't necessarily go straight into that, though. I did have a couple more renos. Um, mm-hmm. And then the reason I moved away from them was just uh, scale, which I found scaling a bit hard. Yeah, doing a reno is okay. I was making – these weren't high-priced properties. I was buying for three, four 400000 I think, back then, it's making 50, 60, 70 grand a time, but um, yeah, yeah. in order to scale, I was having to – I'd have to do quite a lot of volume of renos and, and to actually be able to do that, I would have needed to set up a team and I, I just wasn't in the I, – I wasn't confident enough to do that. So I, I then added some subdivision, uh, did a subdivision with the reno as well, realised that that was actually really easy um, given the skills I already had and then I started – the construction because that wasn't much of a leap from there either
1: so i got i got a couple of questions so when you said when you said that you're making you could easily you could fairly easily make 60 to 80k in reno um I, I sort of whilst that sounds fantastic i imagine that's that's gross profit right? so then you'd, you'd have to pay tax on that I'd, I'd say or is that is that in your pocket uh,
2: yeah uh whenever i talk about profit i talk about profit to whatever entity i'm doing it in so yeah you'll pay tax on that if you didn't reinvest it yeah, or, yeah, did, yeah. The ta- yeah, i always like to talk about profit just as in Yeah, gross is in you paid all your fees your gst and all that and then the money left over is there and the tax you pay is up to how creative your is, really?
1: <laughs> yeah, and how, how many? How many? Yeah, use yeah, structures. Which we had Tony Lee. Check check out our YouTube for that session because you can you can kind of yeah. There's many different ways you can you can do that. But we won't won't um, sort of pull the accountant out out of you. Um, so, but how did you actually learn how to develop though? Because that's yeah, that's I think that's probably Joe's. Because did you have a, a like a, a job occupation background in? In construction or what was it?
2: No, not at all. So I um, was working in strategic purchasing at the time. Uh, procurement is the formal name. A lot of people don't know what that means. It's a bit of a weird word. And um, I was working, started off working for government and then worked for mining. So big companies, big contracts, also commercial stuff. So that gave me some good soft skills that you need around development. With uh, yeah, I, I used to have a lot of meetings with lawyers and things, so it's easy mm. for me to set up. Um, commercial agreements when I got to that with OPM, um, analytical skills, that sort of thing. Uh, but in terms of actually well, how did I figure out how to do this, uh, There's two main influences for me. It was one, fortunate uh, to come from a property family. So my father's a property valuer, and my mother was a real estate agent for about well, 30 years, um, doesn't sell anymore. Um, and so they'd done little renos and things when I was growing up and uh i hadn't thought much of them at the time but when i was a bit older it made sense to follow in their footsteps and they were there to give me some guidance but um as anyone who's worked with their family probably knows it it's great but you still need to break away and stand on your own two feet i mean i get along really well with my family there's no conflict but you still got that family yeah. dynamic at play. So um, I decided to do a, a course like a lot of people. You know, the easiest way to find a mentor is to find someone who's teaching it and, and pay them some money. And there was a course based in Perth uh, with some a couple that did a lot of projects in Perth. Um, like everything, probably cost about 10 grand or whatever the equivalent that, that was 12, 13 years ago. And um, that just gave me a bit more structure and, formality around um how to find find sites and you know like everything the best way to learn is to have someone to guide you but also just get your hands dirty get in there and do it and um the learning curve of just doing one project was probably brought me off that i learned 90 percent of anything i needed to know skills wise the rest of my journey has just been about experience and judgment Um, and that can only be built from time
1: yeah, as, as I say, yeah. the first million or the first kind of deal is, is often the hardest because it, you're, you're, you're concerned that the world's going to, the sky's going to fall if you make one or two mistakes, which in <laughs> most deals or in most purchases, people will make a mistake. So, but I think that's that's really, uh, really interesting.
2: Yeah, definitely. And look, I've, I've often found it over the years, thought back to that first project. And if I go, if I want to do it again today, if all the other numbers were equal, I reckon I could have pulled out another, 30 40% extra profit just from having a bit more experience, better trade knowledge, um, yeah, just refinement. So, yeah, everyone makes wow, some mistakes, okay. but it doesn't mean you have well, to lose money, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's massive. So what what are some of those small mistakes that you made that cost you 30%, oh, uh,
2: We were, the way we, oh, one of the ways to actually make buy rent, sell work is to increase the number of bedrooms in the property. And depending on the, the planning laws around where you live, that doesn't necessarily mean you need a planning approval. Um, so in this house, I found a house with a really large living area and there was room to create another bedroom and an ensuite bathroom. Um, so that was great to increase the value. But when you... The room is a little bit more complex now. So... Um, uh, just the way we renovated it, where we placed the stuff and the trades we used, straight away, there's a lot of money I could have saved in hindsight uh, in the way I did it. And, um, yeah, a lot of it just comes down to that, you know, better decisions around how you executed the reno. And uh, just well, one thing that's always fascinated me with trades is um, some of the best trades don't advertise and they're not necessarily the most expensive either. Um I've worked with some guys, particularly when they're a little bit older, that I've worked with some guys who just had an attitude that because they're older, they can't charge as much because they're not as quick as a young guy, which is probably fine if you're in a building site or something and they're cracking the whip. But from my perspective, you're older, you've got a lot of experience. Um, usually these guys have multiple uh, different skills, different trades, and they just charge. They could charge literally half of what someone else would charge who's um, – just a bit better at marketing themselves and, um, you know, has that different, what is it, uh, that okay, set, worth, set worth, set set point thing, you know, um, people just charge how much they think they're worth rather than how much they are in the marketplace.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, so it was just more of the layout that you structured and and you could have put the bath here and and organised the pipe. You could The pipe work was here and you could have done that that kind of stuff to it. Um, yeah, was, yeah. So when did you start bringing in other people's money into these deals, right? So you're starting with a renovation. You've got like, I don't know, $70,000 kitty in here. Then you run into another renovation. And then, then you're like, how do I scale this? Or how did it? How did that come into play?
2: Yeah, so it was a few years after I started. Um, I was working with, by that stage, I had a, a property coach I, I work with. I, I still work with now. And um, um, property coach. I was looking at...
0: What's a property coach? Yeah, so, um,
2: yeah, so I, I work with a guy called Brendan Kelly. I, I don't know if you've spoken to him before, but he um, runs Results Mentoring. Yeah, you know, mentoring. Uh, yeah. Results Mentoring. Yeah, yeah. Steve founded Results Mentoring, and Brendan and Simon Buckingham were, I think, some of his original coaches. And then uh, somewhere along the journey, they sold, Steve sold it to them, and then they kept running. So course, it's an education good. group. And um, part of that is is coaching. Mentor. And, um, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, as I said before, like, the easiest way to find a good mentor is pay them. <laughs> and then you get their undivided attention. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I had, I had a property coach that's um, been a key part of my journey, by the way. I don't, don't want to undersell that for anyone who's a beginner listening to this. Um, you know, at some point it is a very good idea to find a good education provider and pay them some money. Um, because yeah. it should pay you back many times over. So um, yes. we were looking at, okay, I've done a number of projects at this stage, uh, development, subdivision, renovation, and I wanted to become a full-time developer and quit my job. I, I enjoyed property more than what I was doing and I could make a lot more money. But the biggest issue I had was development and all property investing is very resource intensive. So where do you get the cash from and where do you get the borrowing and that's probably the biggest hurdle when i found from going from being a white collar employee with a good income uh monthly paychecks you're used to just thinking about bank loans and all the rest and um you know, i kept I, I really felt like i was hitting a wall here and i couldn't yeah you know, there's private financiers and things like that but they they would typically charge you more and give you lower lprs so you might solve some of your finances finance problems, but then you're going to need more cash. And, um, you know, Brendan just had had been working on me for probably about 18 months of, you know, why don't you do some kind of joint venture, work with other people and get the money that way. They invest in your projects with you. And I was actually quite um, fearful of that initially because of the responsibility that comes with it. And um, for me, I'm going to take someone else's cash. I've got to be really sure that, I'm doing the best job I can to make sure I maximize uh, the chances of profit. And then going back to my Warren Buffett quote, making sure I, you know, no matter what, I give them their money back. Um, and um, it took me a while to get that level of confidence. But at the end of the day, it was just a matter of starting a project, um, seeing how it went, and then uh, going from there. But one thing that I would, I just want to highlight in terms of that anecdote is if you are looking at, using other people's money, it is really important that you consider the responsibility you have and make sure you've got a strong background. Uh, I only jumped into this when I'd already done quite a lot of other projects. So um, I knew I had the experience there. I wasn't trying to learn how to do a project and also in involving other people because there's too much risk and ethically you need to be confident that you um Going into these with with good skills because if you're going to take the first one of these, I did. I didn't. Oh, well, I put the borrowing capacity in actually because I still had a job at that point. I hadn't quite put the pin, and um, the other guys put the cash in. So um, yeah, you've a big part of what I'm contributing was my skill in being able to do a project. So I needed some confidence that I had that skill and experience. On that on so,
1: that, on that with, point. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, on that point around you had the borrowing capacity, I think now is probably a good time to talk about what are the various components that make up other people's money, like the the pieces of the pie, if you could talk to that.
2: Yeah, great question. So I look at it as, from the development lens, I look at it as uh, three pillars of property development is the way I like to look at it. So in order to do a property development, you need to have a good profitable site, you need someone with the knowledge and experience and skill to actually execute. And you need the resources and the, to be able to do the deal. And the resources are cash and borrowing. So yeah, you know, well, really, sorry, I might simplify that. It is just cash. It's just that typically we will, in order to leverage, you want to get a bunch of that cash from the bank uh, because they lend it to you at a relatively cheap rate. And um, you can then fill the rest in with um, hard cash, I suppose. So um, those are the components, really. Um, and Okay.
0: So all it, it is is um, serviceability partner to be able to go to the bank and borrow, say, 70% loan, and then somebody else to upfront the 30% loan to uh, make 100% of the profit of the deal, like 100% of the deal. yeah that's right and and any other
2: costs that the bank doesn't lend on everything uh so you know the way we do we'll show a little case study later but the sort of project i do we we still like to renovate houses so with that the bank can lend on renos but it's complicated you need a a builder involved who probably take too much margin so we just do that in cash um subdivision costs we do in cash um and you need your buffers for holding costs and planning applications and all that kind of stuff as well
0: yeah okay so what what does a typical deal look like like what is the breakdown actually that might be that that might be an interesting question um, well that is an interesting that's a question I'm interested in like, yeah yeah well, let, to- look, let me give you a tangible example here so people get their head around it so one
2: thing I'll just yeah, say yeah, yeah. this is very much an art so um, all of this comes down to the strategy that you're trying to implement so if I'm doing straight renovations, I'll probably do it different to if I was doing um, renovation and construction, or and maybe differently if I was doing large land releases. Um, so the strategy I employ is um, we like sites where we can keep an existing house and renovate it and subdivide into three or four lots. So we're building two or three new uh, units. So um, under that model, we... Um, we look at it as having three roles. One is the skill role, uh, which is what developed capital does. So in our model, we find the site uh, and do all the work required to get the uh, project seen through to completion. Um, We then split the financial resources into two roles. One is the servicing role. And for us, this is somebody who has borrowing capacity that they're not using and wants to lend it to the project. So they're not putting in cash and they're not paying for the borrowing costs that's paid for by the project. So, <laughs> typical, now so you might think, oh, who the hell, <laughs> oh, sorry,
0: There's yep. <laughs> two people in this, so there's three people in this scenario, generally speaking, but now you're telling me that there's two parties out of the three that are no money down. There's the borrowing capacity. There is you, the developer, who's finding, securing, negotiating, and doing the development that's got no money into it. And then the borrowing capacity partner actually has no financial, um, they're on the hook for the borrowing. um, So there is a big responsibility there, but they're not actually putting down $100,000. So if you are maxed out, I'd
1: I'd say that they actually, they technically are putting the money in though, because they're they're borrowing the money from the bank. I mean, yes, they're not, it's not, but they're not putting any cash,
0: it's zero dollars down for them.
2: It's, it's it's a different I like to think of this as a its own resource because um, yes, the rather how do you, when the art to this stuff is you also have to figure out based on what people are putting in what's what's a reasonable return. And um, the borrowing capacity is interesting. So the people we work with that typically people will have um, they have this, a good income, but they so the bank will lend them money, but they don't necessarily have cash there and a desire to go buy a property so often these might be uh we work with a lot of people who are say professionals around their late 20s early 30s they've got a good career behind them and a good income but they they've been doing other stuff you know traveling whatever they haven't been saving up money for a deposit they want to get involved in property but they um they No, it's going to take a few years to get some cash behind them. They're saving up. And they've got this borrowing capacity that they're not going to use in the meantime. So they can then lend that to the project. Now, as you said, Jeff, they're they're definitely putting something in because uh, we're using residential lending. The bank will ask them to be guarantor for that loan. So there's a risk component there. They need comfort that there's sufficient margins to make sure that the chance of them ever being, the property ever selling for less than was owed. is, is very is very minute so that they don't end up having to owe money. Um, so they definitely put something in, but as Joe said, they haven't put in cash either. So, um, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting role, figuring out exactly what return they get. The way I've looked at it in my model, we look at it as more of a fee rather than a rate of return because you you can't say, you know, when, you, when we look at people putting in cash, that's a bit more straightforward. They just put cash in, um, and they get a return for that. Uh, we And we look at typically, uh, under our model, everyone gets a share of the profit, so they can share the upside gains when the market grows. But there is also, if it probably didn't perform as well, um, they could get a bit less. But for that reason, we target relatively high returns for cash between 15 to 20% annualised. Um, so that's kind of easy to see where the benchmarks are for that because we have... Bank rates of return and bond markets and all sorts of stuff. For the servicing, a bit more difficult, but we typically, for what we're doing, we're buying the site between 800 to a million. Perth Perth isn't, I think it is actually the cheapest uh, capital city in Australia. So, yeah, we're not paying Sydney prices at um, um, 80% LVR. What's that, sorry? I
1: think it's cheaper than Darwin at the moment.
2: Oh, that might be the only yeah. They're quite slow, and Perth are close. close. (laughs) Even Adelaide overtook us. So yeah, and um, yeah, um, the as I say, the um, so yeah, that might be $800,000 in loan, but um, they're not necessarily putting. They're not putting that money in as cash. So we just the way I figured it out. I think I just talked to people and saw what type of fee they'd like, and typically it's about forty thousand ish um, that they look to get. and, um, yeah, we find that works pretty well for people.
0: So a $40,000 for, to be a borrowing capacity partner.
2: Um, yeah, yeah. And the key being, um, though, that they don't pay the interest. You know, the project pays ah, that.
1: that's paid by the project.
2: Yeah, yeah, by. because it wouldn't, it wouldn't really make sense. Otherwise, you wouldn't be getting much yeah. if, if, if anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, so just a $40,000 flat fee at the end of the project term.
2: No, for us we we give them a share of the profit. So um we're forty five percent or forty
0: thousand dollars
2: forty. Yeah, so they get a slice of the profit, right? So um they get fifteen percent of the profit. But before we commit to a deal, it need the forecast that forecast slice of the pie needs to show at least forty thousand dollars so they're comfortable yet yeah, there's enough there to make it work by while um so so yeah we've we've kind of jumped right into the rabbit hole there because i've thrown a few different concepts out one, one thing i just want to point out is the reason this is an art is if you think about how our conversations has gone, we've thought about what's everyone's role what have they put in what's the risk to them and then how do they get paid um i like to do it as a profit share because, and the reason I do that is more personal preference, um, that you're doing development, I can promise everyone a return, but at the end of the day, the only way people get paid is if the development makes money and has a profit. So when I put my first one of these together, I thought, well, why don't we just make it pretty straightforward and everybody get a share of the profit? So that way we're all in there with our eyes open and we know that The more money this thing makes, the more money we get. And if for some reason it made less money, then we've accepted that that is a risk of developing. Um, And um, so that's why the servicing guys get a share. And then the people who put in cash get a share. Theirs is 55% of the overall. And then my company gets a share, 30% of the overall. And so what that means is that, yeah, we've had good times around the country over the last few years. Prices have gone up. Uh, we've got a number of projects where the profit is a lot higher than we initially thought, and you know that forty thousand dollars fee for some guys is sitting around seventy, eighty thousand. Um, uh, so that's fine. It's exciting. We've all um, all been in a project together, and we all get to share the win.
1: So, 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 I think to clarify, I think Joe was looking a little confused about this. So I think it's it's a minimum of forty thousand that that would go to the to the servicing partner. Is that forty thousand or the percentage?
2: Uh, no, I would put it <laughs> this. But the, I think the way I would describe it in my scenario is it is a share of the profit. Yeah. Target returns forty. Yeah. Uh, so we've gone in. So it's capped, we've done our due diligence. No, 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 40? no. Not capped at all. No, That's it's a target. You're getting a share. So maybe I'll just do a real simple thing. Hey, yeah. it's Joe. We'll just pretend you're my servicing guy. Um, you want to be part of my project? I found this. Project here and we've done our due diligence and we checked our numbers. Uh, so we we're very confident that today as, as of today in this market, the profit is real and that you will get a 15% share of that. And what that's projecting is forty-two thousand dollars, so um, and you say, Okay, that's fine. I mean that seems reasonable to me, knowing full well that if <laughs> yeah, well, Jeff, you can be oh, sorry, the partner, no, no, sorry. Sure. I I'm
1: in the cash partner, not the
2: servicing yet, but... <laughs> Oh yeah, sure. You can be in the cash partner, sure. And so
1: water,
2: it? Jeff, yours is fifty-five percent share of the profit, which yep. um works out to be let's say a thirty-two percent return on the money you put in. Um yep. and um that way we start the project and if the market grows, someday your returns are up. You because you are getting a share of the profit, but if the market went down a bit, um, then maybe you get a bit less. So, cool. other yeah, that yeah, yeah, makes would... sense. So
0: if we make a hundred thousand yeah. dollars profit, I get fifteen thousand, Jeff gets fifty-five thousand, you get thirty thousand.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: Yep. yeah, cool, 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 cool. That makes sense. Okay, yeah. cool. We got it. Yeah. Um, so um, one of the questions that I have is what happens. Well, actually, there's a question that's actually come up here already. Have you ever returned a loss and how does that work for people? So one of the things is yeah. is capital risk. Um, how do you how do you get around that? Like yeah. how does someone...
2: So if you lose- I have not returned a loss, but that doesn't mean to say it can't happen because the yeah. biggest, biggest thing outside of our control is the market. And um, I spend a lot yeah. of effort in being very selective about where i buy but look at the last three years you know COVID came along no one knew about that um rate rises yeah we might we had a sense it would rise at some point but who could say when how quickly or where it will stop um and, and what does that even mean for your local market very different all over australia for what that means so um what does that mean in my model if we're sharing profits we share downside risk as well and this is just this goes back to the art though this is how i like to structure it you and i was talking a second how there's other ways you could do it um yeah. in our model remember i said that the cash guys get the biggest return 55 yeah. the reason for that is in our model they take the risk biggest risk because if we lost money um the bank always gets repaid first so the first person the first thing that goes is the profit the second thing that goes would be the capital, and then the um, if you're at a point where you couldn't repay the bank, that's when the um, servicing guy might be on the hook. But really, if you're at that point, why would you want to sell the property? You know, no one's getting anything. So um, yeah, risk mitigation comes into this as well. The strategy we pick and exit points and so on, which is a different discussion. So that's one way. One. I just want to do an alternative example just to demonstrate to people why this is an art. Because we could have done this a bit differently. We could say, well, we won't do profit share at all. I will raise the money and do that as a loan. So, Jeff, now instead of me giving you profit, I'm going to give you, I'm going to say, give me a two-year loan and I'll pay you, geez, where's bank interest at the moment? Maybe 8% per annum. Uh, That's a bit of a clip on top of the bank. Um, And it's secured by uh caveat say so you've got some security there against the asset um yeah
0: and then joe
2: so, as the servicing guy i'll just pay you a flat fee um so that's all great the risk is then more transferred onto me uh so if if i did the numbers that way there'd be more profit left over that could be left to the skill person but um you've then got that risk of making sure if your development runs a bit slower and you're running out of time maybe you don't get it done in Two years because you, you know, COVID hit and things got delayed. In which and case, we got a penalty,
1: a penalty interest so on on the in the in the heads of agreement or the JV agreement or whatever it's called, and then you have to pay the you pay the, the servicing partner more. And yeah, anyway, I'll let you.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and all of this is all that can work fine. I know plenty of developers that do it that way, but for me, a lot of it just came down to that aligning. Or, I wanted to align the return with the. With the project, so that everyone no one comes into this. The problem if I go to someone and tell them that they're getting a loan and a fixed rate of return is they kind of a lot of people will think of that almost like a bank loan or something and it's guaranteed and locked in. Um, yeah. which it is. It but what happens if someone saying COVID was worse than it it had, you know, there was a different type of COVID and it was really bad at this time and killed heaps of people, and property actually did drop 30%, like the Doom sales were saying. And suddenly, I can't actually repay the loan because I don't have. There's no equity in the thing, and no one's getting their fee. Um, yeah, you know, I just just a personal preference for me that I wanted to light it more up with the project itself, so everyone goes in with their eyes open, and um, uh, we're all working to the same basis, which I found worked pretty well. When unexpected stuff has happened, um, yeah, you know, everyone's been on the same page. It hasn't been too hard to work your way through it.
1: Yes, I, yeah, I think I think yeah. it's a good um, good time to jump into what um what what are some of the challenges that have happened in projects and, and what are the, some of the more common.
2: I think the development is a really good um, strategy for you can get good profit and good uh, returns on your money. The most challenging thing with it is there are um, a lot of things that are a bit out of your control along the way. So one is timeliness. So banks and councils are the notorious institutes that push my timelines out, in that once I go into their process to get finance for buying the site or building or our planning approvals, um, that's when, yeah, you know, there's, there's targets they work to, but they have no obligation to stick to them. So that's typically where we see delays. Um, and it can be a bit hard to, we always build contingency into our timeframes, but it, it is hard to know exactly when something's going to finish. And if you're doing a development, you need to accept that that's a risk and understand that any projection is a bit rubber in terms of time. This is a uh, a bit of a slower moving beast than, say, a, a quick cosmetic in and out Renault. Um, yeah. The other thing is is market fluctuations, probably the other, other risk. So um, in the projects I've had that haven't returned as much, I've, I haven't had anything that's lost money, but um, the ones that they didn't return as much, it was usually just because the market might have softened a bit um, and you didn't get quite that at the sale price that you thought you would at the start. Um, so, yeah, those are probably the two two main things to think of in terms of risk. Uh, another one, which I've sold pretty well, is your builder so um, that's the third pillar that could really cause you a lot of delays uh, if they're not switched on um, and i used to having a background in procurement meant i used to do lots of tenders in my day job so i used to always tender the work and work with different builders uh, but i started to realize in the residential space their net margin is very narrow it might only be making five six percent net profit uh, excluding all their overheads and things, so how much am I going to save by tendering? One percent, two percent, yeah. And if I save too much, I'm actually might be going with a guy who's not going to make any profit. In which case, the only reason they're taking that on is they're probably going to go broke pretty soon because they're, they're desperate for cash flow. So um, I realised then, if you're doing that and you end up with a builder that runs a bit slow, it doesn't take too many months of extra holding costs to erode any savings you got. And so I decided to make a decision to work with one builder as a preferred builder and therefore build a really strong relationship with them and um, start being able to solve some of that risk. And the guy I met, um, Unged, he uh, runs a building company just for developers, um, sorry, primarily for developers. He does the old house build. He's a developer himself. Uh, I formed a really good relationship with him. I'm now really good mates with him, um, and he and I founded the Perth Property Developers uh, Networking Group. So we we do that as well. So um, certainly Let's that that Joe manages a lot of that risk, you know.
0: Joe and Jeff, Joe and Jeff special that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, did, did you, <laughs> you meet in results mentoring by any
1: chance?
2: <laughs> no, I was running a networking meeting, um, and I'm good. Walked in with another now good mate of mine, Zach, and. Um, We started chatting and, yeah, here we are. There
0: you go. So one one of the big things that you mentioned there is picking a good builder. What are some of the things that we should be looking out for when it comes to selecting a builder? And what are some of the red flags that we could potentially be seeing out there?
2: Look, I think the biggest tip I could say is pick a builder that commonly builds what you're building Mm. so that you are their ideal client. sounds obvious, but one thing that that is hard with building is the vast majority of clients. When you look at your main builders, the vast majority of their clients are home builders. And home builders, what they're usually, they're usually kind of price sensitive to a point, but they're also then really just wanting their dream or as much of it as they can afford. So you hit them with a three, four-month delay on their build. They might not even notice that much, or they might whinge, but it's not really the end of the world for them. Um, Developers are very different. We're very demanding that we want good quality, at least, or sorry, we want enough quality to meet what our target market wants, but we don't necessarily want much more, or maybe slightly more to stand out from the crowd. We want it as cheap as possible because every dollar saved is a dollar made, and we want it as quick as possible for the same reason. Um, so dealing with a development-centric builder means that a lot of process is going to be much more focused to you. So think about something like pre-start with a builder, you go do your selections and so on. Um, yeah, for a home buyer, that's a multi-day process and stressing about the colours they need a lot of hand-holding. For a developer, often there'll be certain things I know about my target market that they need. And the rest of the selections are basically what's popular right now. Um, give me those. Uh, I don't need a very big range at all. Um, so so that's one big thing. If you get that right fit, then you, your builder should be um, starting off on the right foot. And then the second big thing is um, financial stability. And that's a very difficult thing to measure. And everyone's very aware of it at the moment because unfortunately builders are going broke. And... It's not a big surprise as to why. I mean, if their import costs go up 20% per annum, which they have been in Perth, and uh, I figure it's pretty similar in a lot of the other areas, um, their gross margin is only 20%. (laughs) So they're making losses on bills. And how can they sustain that? Um, You need to... you You can ask for financial reports and things, but I just don't put any store in that because I don't care what you would like at one point in time 12 months ago at the end of the financial year, um, I need to know how how your, your solvency and cash flow is now. And the best way i found to look into that is think about their cash flow and their business structure. You need to know how many projects they've got on, what stage those projects are up to, and um, uh, how many overheads they have, how many staff and, and, and lease. So, And then you can get a bit of a feel. If they've got a good even spread of projects and um, – Yeah, if their net margin is six percent, then you can kind of figure out what kind of cash flow they might have coming in, and if it feels right, then good enough. But when you look at that, you might often you'll find builders the the one the red sign red flag is the builder that has heaps of jobs that are about to finish and hardly anything new starting. So that's someone who's got a pending cash flow problem, and uh, you don't want to be part of that.
0: So how do you identify that? Do you just ask how many new projects, how many projects are you working on, and how many have you got coming up? Is it that easy?
2: Yeah, yeah. When I when I met Umgood, um and he did the first bill for me, I asked him just show me. Your, can you tell me all the projects you got on? Where are they up to? What's their value? Uh, how many how much staff do you have? And I, I was upfront. I said, yeah, I just want to get a bit of a sense for your um cash flow and um and and. One thing I will say, just because something might not seem right from the ideal, at least give gives people a chance to explain, you know, um, a new growing business won't have a great cash flow projection, but they might be able to show they've got heaps of cash reserves. Um, and, um, you know, once you – and then just think about it commercially. So, okay, you've got these staff and these roles. You can just do a back the envelope calculation as to what their likely overheads are, and you know the total value of their bills. the probably working on it you need to know your market but in perth they're probably working on about a 20 percent gross margin six percent net so does that that's a 14 uh between their net profit and then gross so is that enough to cover their staff and their the rest of their stuff yes well they're probably probably that's a, a fine business to jump in with so yeah but yeah, I think we're we're getting off the OPM and into the uh, how for building. <laughs> no, it's,
1: it's 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 very it's very interesting though, isn't it? But um, but so so let's um, I, I think I think we can it'd be interesting to talk about the the types of deals that because it sounds like you're you're quite a you you are an arts uh like you, you focus on the art of of other people's money, but but you do have a system and a process. So what what sort of deals do do you find works quite well to make sure you can you're able to deliver um, a a sort of close to a repeatable process?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So um, what I aim for is, um, I think you you just said, I aim for a strategy that allows repetition and to repeat the same deal. So if you think of my niche, buy, renovate, build two or three new. Um, The way the planning code works in Perth and the, the land sizes, that's, there's heaps of properties that could do that. Um doesn't mean they're profitable, but just if you just went looking for sites, there's heaps of potential sites. So it's something you can easily replicate. And the reason I like that is then I can systemize it um, so I can start getting very efficient at how I do the projects. And the better my systems are, the more um, predictable my outcomes are because I've got good control over them. I'm doing the same thing over and over, so I get a good understanding of the ins and outs. Um, and I'm, I, what I'm trying to do is avoid pioneering. Um, another way to do projects and, and build is to jump into new projects each time. Maybe start with a four unit, then do a six unit, then an eight unit and a 12, and then you end up building a 10-storey apartment building or something. Um, that definitely works. But the risk with that approach is each time you jump into a new project, you're all reinventing the wheel. There's parts of that project you've never done before uh, which means, what's the term? It's, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it, it I do like the term of the unknown unknowns, you know. Um, if it's a Jiharis known unknown. Know.
1: Good old Jaharis we Yeah, know.
2: exactly. Yeah. If it's a known unknown, we can find an expert to reveal that for us. If we don't know that it's even there, then it's going to have an impact, positive or negative, and we're just going to have to wear it. And every time you've changed strategy, there's unknown unknowns. And that first one you do is...
0: There's there's a, a learning curve there, um, so I like to avoid yeah, that when possible. Yeah, you know? and you create um, a structured, systemized process that you can just keep repeating, repeating, repeating. And the value of that is you get better and better and better at the uh, at the process. So, one question I'm interested in is: if I'm a wannabe developer and I want to maybe not do this full time, but I want to understand the process, what's the best way to start? Should I? Should I be like a borrowing capacity partner? Should I put some money into the deal myself? Should I should I tag along with a developer? Like, what's the best way to not be not, a wannabe and be a be? Yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. That we're, look, not that we're saying that that people should be doing uh,
1: people should do whatever they feel comfortable with. Speak to all their, you know, fine, not financial advice people, of course. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Um, I no, mean, it's um there's definitely a learning curve there. So I think the best way to approach this is to acknowledge the learning curve, and then um, your what you try. What you need to do is learn as much as you can and get as much hands-on experience as possible before, so that you can grow into a point of of being the person that does the deal. And I'll just give a very quick analogy around this, and then explain a specific example where I've, I've worked with someone who's gone on this journey. So I like to think of this very similar to how I ended up running a marathon i didn't ever actually set out to run a marathon i just um met a guy who did running and i had hockey season coming up and i wanted to um do, get fit for hockey and this guy shane is like an ultra marathon runner he runs i think he did a 200 mile run earlier in the year which is 320 k's and it took him nearly three days or something and um you sleep as much as you want or you you need so like and he won the race and that's part of the strategy is figuring out how much sleep you do or don't need and you know crazy stuff i didn't even know people could run that far um until i met him and so i started running with his running group and started getting really fit i had a great season that year with hockey but while i was running everyone else in there is doing ultra marathons and marathons and triathons and they kept asking me oh when's your next event adam and i said oh, i just play hockey and after about Six or eight months, I thought, you know, what? Maybe I should do an event. So I trained for a half marathon, and then yeah. next thing you knew, I was running a marathon. And it, it didn't seem that hard to jump there because everyone around me was a high performer in running, and I just sort of learned off them, copied what they did, yeah. went to it's their kind of, coach. It's kind of, and kind of like the Todd yeah?
1: Sloan—you don't idolise, you normalise. You start to hang out with the people that, you, like, if you if you want to be a property developer, start going to events like the Perth, a development a per property developers. I think it's sorry if I've yep. talked to your name.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's why we part of why we started that group is to create that community. So now to yeah. be specific about how how do you actually do it for development? Well, there's a guy, a good friend of mine, Tom. I met Tom through networking groups because he wanted to be a developer and he went to networking groups. And um, he came to our networking group and you met, Ungrid, met me. Um, First step was just we got to know him. He built his network. He'd obviously done a lot of reading and stuff to learn about developing. He then um, wanted to get his hands dirty. So I asked Angad and I if he could get involved at all. And Angad um, needed some help in his construction company, and Tom had an, has an accounting background. So Tom, could, um, Tom jumped in and started doing some bookkeeping accounting work with it. So he's now in a construction business and getting to see all of that. And then Tom had a chat to me, and Tom had some spare superannuation money, which he was able to put into one of my projects uh, in the form of cash. And um, he could now see how an actual project looked like. You know, he'd come along, get all the outcome of the due diligence, see the strategy, and all of that. And um, you know, he started learning. And through this, he was yeah. He, one thing that was I was really impressed with Tom is he turned up. You know, he came to every meeting. He got to know people. He Got to know us sort of socially as well, and we, yeah, we got a good, we're a good group of friends who are all developers, and we, yeah, we go out for social stuff, and Tom would come to that, so he's getting to know everyone, yeah. and then um, just by being around and asking questions, I got to a point where I needed a bit of help with my site searching, just to systemize it and have someone help me just do some of the data entry routine stuff. So Tom was available if he's interested. I asked him. And then I got him to do some um, – I taught him how to do high-level fees initially so he could do the initial kind of steps for me. And then I'd check and I'd give him feedback. And, um, you yeah, know, over about 18 months, he started to learn how to find his own profitable sites to the point where, yeah, I could give him more and more and he's bringing me – he's almost like a buyer's agent. And um, then with the project management of the projects, I have multiple projects on, I have people who assist me in, in managing them. So um, – Again, it was pretty easy just to ask Tom if he could help me with some of that. And um, then he started to get more hands-on experience with um, um, seeing how the projects ran. And um, he built yeah, his experience is interesting that yeah.
0: this you're starting to build it up and build it up, but it's it's kind of going back to, well, Steve McKnight's quote, now we've worked that out, but you put a part-time effort into something, you're going to get a part-time result, like, it sounds like Tom is very invested in making this development happen, and he wants yeah. to learn every single step of the way. Um, but you don't necessarily have to be a Tom, right? You can be a, a Jeff who is just the finance partner, or a Joe that's just the the borrowing capacity partner. Um, yeah, awesome. Okay, and and what's like the minimum amount of money that someone can run to get into a deal? Like, is there like a cutoff where you say? It, it oh, well. depends
2: on. It depends on how. People structure it for what I do. The sort of project we're doing, a pool of money. We want a pool of five hundred thousand in cash and the borrowing capacity, so we know we can go out there and find a great site. Um, yep. So for me, my minimum is one hundred and fifty thousand, just because I don't want too many people in yep. a project just to keep it uh, simple. But um, yeah, it, I would say if you had fifty thousand, you've still got options because you might find it someone works. who's doing a renovation. And a renovation might only need 150,000 or 200, 300,000. Sorry, um, depending on where you where you're buying it. Um, and and you know, I I do know a guy who does stuff in regional New South Wales. He probably only needs 150, 200. So if someone gave him 50, he'll happily uh, work with them. So yeah, you don't necessarily need heaps and heaps of cash. Um, uh, so yeah, there, there's plenty of options. And and I I'd say about half the people I work with are interested in been there, a developer themselves. They've just put some money in so they can see how a project works and um, go along on that journey. And um, a lot of them then start doing their own stuff in parallel and um, sooner or of later they're the ones starting up their own JVs and using OPM. So, yeah, and that's always great to see when somebody gets to that point and, yeah, they're still in your network and they're just now more of a peer than um, an investor or, or a beginner.
1: The student becomes a sensei.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
1: there you go. How do you like it? Um, it's, it's, it's interesting you kind of you kind of talk to that because you sort of when when you and and I sort of seen this as well. The one the projects that often have more people in them, you often start to have greater challenges. So I think the one of yeah. one of the one of the key things of using other people's money is less is is. Def, I think with people at least is definitely more be, because you, you start having five or six people. Then somebody then somebody's aunt has an opinion about. What uh, how you should renovate a property, or they, or that you should only build two instead of building three, and they've all, they've got these sort of really sort of well well-meaning ideas and opinions that may not be the best for the project or all the people in the project as well.
2: Oh, yeah. I think- look, it's uh, you. If you're going to run one of these, you really have to think about exactly what you spoke about. And one part is how many people, another part is what are people's roles. Very clear role definition. And one thing I'll stress heavily is there can only be one chief so i like the skill partner role to be a defined role i don't want two or three people doing that um even if if i was putting my money into someone else's project i i need to know that there's one person running it um decision. so straight away a lot of these things are now not even going to come up because no one asked their auntie about the colors because you've said straight up you're paying me to be the skill person I'm picking the colors. Yeah, you know, If you want to know what they are, no problem, I'll tell you. But I'm making the final decision. Uh, it, under my structure, it's very clear. I've made the final decision on everything. I can make the final decision on the sale price that we accept when we go to sell as well. Um, and that's right. really important okay. because you so can't cash deadlock.
0: have no say whatsoever around, I mean, they, they can offer you guidance, but from a legal perspective, no, that's I've got the final say around what, what so, actually yeah, happens there's, a, there's some government
2: things there. They could they can have a say if they don't think I'm performing, but it yeah. uh we use company structures under the Corporations Act. If the, if fifty one percent of the shareholders pass a motion, then it has to be followed. So there's something there. But yeah, there, and 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 the reason I use that as an example, if you think about you're selling a property, trying to accept an offer and you're gonna go to four or five people and try and get some consensus around it while it's live, you know, um,
0: no, I'll, I'll, cool, I'll do cool, that, bro. you
2: know? no, Yes, yeah, exactly. But, of course, if for some reason the product wasn't – the market had dropped and we're looking at a bit of a, a, a lesser result, then I've – of course, up front, I will have explained where the likely range is and got everyone's buy-in that we're likely to move there. Uh, but – yeah, it, it's important in your legal agreement you have single points of decision-making because otherwise you could hit deadlock and then that's when disputes happen, legal disputes. yeah. yeah.
0: What, just a little bit off to, off this topic, but how, what's the general time frame turnaround for keep the front house, renovate the front house and put one, two, three at the back?
2: Um, Pre-COVID, we would say 18 months. Uh under our and this depends on your planning jurisdiction. So different around the country. Um yep. we we now target we say twenty-four months now just because COVID COVID led to a lot of delays. That's um winding back. Yeah, the at, at, its peak because of the construction boom and all the stimulus, there was delays in every part of the system, from banks running slow to titles office running slow to construction running slow. Um those delays aren't out of the system. It's and it's hard if you're starting something today. Maybe you do get it close to eighteen months because all those things resolve as you get there, but you don't really know. So we'd rather just add a bit of contingency in. Um, but yeah, it's not a not a super quick process. So you um, need to make sure you're. And going back to Jeff and how many people involved. Something else. You just probably me. There's something else I want to point out that sometimes some is better than one, though, because if you're doing a 18-month project you guys said jeff i need 500,000 to do the project very different to if you're just putting in 150 so you're not yeah. putting in your life savings and all your investment portfolio necessarily so that changes how much of a risk it feels to you um and i i often meet people and they're keen to jump in and sometimes they can not fund a whole project themselves but Usually, we just have that conversation. Why don't you maybe you just put in your 150, 200, 250 for this one, and and if you want to do two pro, yeah, you know, if you like how it's going after six months, you can always jump in another and and spread it around a bit. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind, of, it's kind a, of
1: about learning, learning to learning to cr- learning to crawl before you can walk, and and sort of actually building that relationship with the person who's running the project as well, because I think I think that's vital. It's about the relationship and, and feeling comfortable, because. Um, if, if It is, it is a, a, a huge, can be a huge financial decision to put sort of half a million dollars into a project with somebody you've not, um, it's about trust and communication, all that sort of building the relationship.
2: Yeah, and and you don't want, you know, project timelines can blow out. So with COVID, we've got a number of projects that profits up hugely, but the timeline's looking more like three years rather than yeah. what we initially targeted. But, yeah, yeah it, it's it doesn't necessarily mean it's a disaster for people because if they haven't got all their eggs in one basket. They're not under financial strain. Um, so that's yeah,
0: a big, that's actually a really, a really good point. Um, what I would like to do is jump into a bit of a case study about around this of like looking at what a real deal actually looks like, um, yeah. and covering, covering off. But before, who's excited
1: for a case study?
0: Throw, if, throw if, in if, the if comments, you want to see, a
1: case study, yeah. drop a drop study if, in the, in the comments.
0: And if you don't, <laughs> we, we'll have to end the broadcast because there's, there's not much <laughs> no, else we, after that. Yeah, yeah, and we're we'll we're, we're going to get Q and A, to a, as, a well. as well, so got, we're going
1: to do that all in the next twenty minutes because it's date night. So. <laughs>
0: Throw your questions, yeah, right, yeah. all <laughs> that, all that fun stuff. We're just going to run one more ad and then we'll jump straight into it. The amazing thing with commercial property investing is that in most cases, it's cash flow positive from day one, which means that you can drive those profits towards paying down the debt. There are instances with commercial property investing where you can actually have the property pay itself off over 10 years, which is absolutely crazy. With commercial property, you get massive net yields. so you can expect anywhere between 6 to 10%. And as we've seen in the current boom, these properties not only provide large cash flow, they do certainly grow wildly in value too. Now, with big rewards comes some risk, and this is why you should de-risk your investment as much as possible, and the way you do that is with expert due diligence, and this is why we highly recommend people hire professionals to help you along in your investing journey. Steve Polisi of Polisi Property is one such expert. Being a chartered mechanical and structural engineer in a past life, Steve draws on his analytical and mathematical skills to do that expert due diligence for you. With six years experience in the space, Steve has over 1,200 property transactions under his belt. He's the guy you want in your corner, crunching the numbers and finding the best properties in the best locations, along with ensuring that you avoid the mistakes. Steve has actually even written the book on commercial property investing in Australia. And not only is it a bestseller, I believe it to be the most comprehensive in commercial property investing on the market today. He's been generous enough to give us a massive discount for our audience of 50%. So use the code OzProp, click the link below, get a copy today and start learning and getting on your commercial property investing journey.
1: And um, and I was gonna say with um with that we've got a to Steve's birthday this week. So if if, oh. if you put birthday in there, you'll actually get a hundred percent off of the book. yes. Oh, the new one it. as well. Yeah, the Resi one. So you got to do a post about that anyway, Joe. But uh, but no, let's let's get into the case study. So Joe, do you want do you want to, you've got you've been you've been chopping the bit to get this case study up. So I'm ex- I'm excited to see what what this is because there's nothing like looking at a looking at a real deal, uh, or real kind yeah. of situation.
2: Yeah, yeah
0: real yeah. deal. Real deal makes uh, makes perfect sense. So what I'm going to do is share my screen, but it's going to take me a second. Going to take so, a second, apologies. It's going to take me a second, but we're going to do it. So, what,
1: what's <laughs> to bring bring? How many, how many deals have you got on the run at the moment, Adam? Just quickly,
0: uh, we've got
2: 12 at the moment, and um, wow. a couple are just about to finish. And um, I have been looking at a pretty good development site just this week, so might be adding another one in the next couple of weeks. Wow. If it starts along, we'll see how we go. <laughs>
1: that's, that's exciting. Yeah.
0: So, how does it work in WA? One of the questions I have around um, WA is: it is it a full like in uh, is the state control all the plannings? Is it individual council have different planning regulations? How the kind yeah, of great, how does that kind of work?
2: Great question. It's close to being state controlled, but there is local council involvement. So, I'll so to explain that, there is something called the residential design codes. They set out the residential development standards uh, i'm just talking about group dwellings here um, townhouses and single houses there is also a similar thing for apartments um, and then each local council can then set the zoning under their uh, local town planning scheme and um they can also create local planning policies which can vary parts of the residential design code but it's not a free-for-all, you know. The, that has to be approved by a state government body called the West Australian Planning Commission. So they're not going to let them... There's got to be reasons for it. And often it's... The, the idea behind it is to make sure it's suitable for... It takes into account the nuances of different areas. So in the city, there's things like heritage in different, you know, older suburbs of different streetscapes to new suburbs. In But WA is a very, very big landmass. There's a lot of country towns... So, you know, country towns can then have different things going on that are much more relevant for them than, say, Perth and regional cities like Gero, Busso, uh, Bunbury, Albany, you know, they can brew, um, they can do different stuff as well. So, yeah, um, super interesting. it's one thing that's good with it is that the residential design codes state a minimum standard. So, if you meet the minimum standard, then your planning gets approved, more, more or less. There's so that we, we go in with some certainty around what it is we can build. Um, yeah. We don't get stuck with this idea of we think it's a three-unit site, but it could be five or it could be two. Um, yeah, it's, it's fairly prescriptive that way. So I quite enjoy so working like, with that system.
0: Yeah, it's like minimum lot size um, for a subdivision is is 450 square metres, guaranteed, like it's, you, yeah. know, you can yeah. fit it on there.
2: Yeah, to figure out if you can subdivide something, uh, if you're knocking the house down, you probably don't even need to survey necessarily. You can just do the maths off the title. If you're keeping a house, you just need to see how much space is behind the house and whether there's enough room there to build the additional lots um, yeah. as, at a high level. You know? um, yeah. So it's good. It means when the, we do our due diligence, we've got some, we've got some pretty good certainty about the outcome we're going to get. Yeah,
0: yeah. Sweet. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Well, um, what you're doing is keeping the front house. So let's jump into that now. Let's do now. it. I haven't
1: got a, yeah, so We're going to have a lot of time for Q and
2: A. Yeah, we'll, we'll well, we'll jump through this pretty quick because I have talked about this before. So I've already explained my strategy here. Um, one thing, probably all I didn't say is we target owner occupiers and we want areas with good amenity and good affordability. So that way, yes, the market can do strange things, but we know that. Um, there's always people there that want to live in this area. So we're, never, we're not facing a problem of, shit, there's no one around to buy the house. Whereas if we're on an outer suburb, somewhere really cheap, then you know, people only live there because it's cheap. Uh, that, that's not what we want. Uh, and the other thing is we target owner-occupiers because owner-occupiers buy emotionally, so we can drive the highest price out of them as long as we hit those emotional things.
0: Yep. Makes sense. Can't argue with that. Okay, retaining the front house and then opportunity to add two or three more dwellings at the back. So this is when the site is set, like the house is set really far forward on the block. So you've got, you know, a thousand square metre block and the house at the front. Then you can have a driveway cut out and put some properties at the back. Is there any rules around the driveway width? Um, Yeah. yeah. As a general rule of thumb? Yeah,
2: with this, there are, you know, I said that, planning code is clear it is still there's still lots of nuance so we always get our town planning expert to look at it and we get the lot layout done because there's rules around the driveway width so if you lock the house down the driveway needs to be a minimum of four meters wide if if you can keep the house if by keeping the house it means that you can't get four meters then they can allow you to reduce it to three meters but only if there's not enough space there. So if you if there was enough space for it to be four metre wide, then you still have to do four metres. But if trying to get that means you'd have to knock the house down, then there's an allowance there. Um, yep. See, there's lots of little rules around that. Um, and as we know, there's always red tape with planning. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a, okay, that's... cool, cool, cool. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> um, what are we looking at here? This so is the real deal.
2: Yeah, a project we're doing in Mount Lawley. So we sold the existing house, and we're about—we got the plate hide finishing for the construction at the back. So a real good example of what I've talked about. It's a keep the house, and we're building two behind two townhouses, three bedroom, two bathroom, two story. Um, this suburb is a affluent suburb of Perth. It's not quite in the super rich area though parts of it are um, but it's um, you know per medium price is 500 ish I lose track maybe high 500s Joe do you happen to know where it sits somewhere around there um, and bad, yeah. you know end sale for a new product of this would be low millions so yeah not uh, towards that upper end of the market um, we purchased the site in twenty. 20- 20 just before COVID, um, yeah. we purchased for nine hundred and fifty-one thousand, um and when timing was great you know we're now looking at quite a higher return uh we sold the existing house for nine hundred and fifty-five thousand um a few months ago or earlier in the year and um <laughs> so, yeah, so if you sell one component for more than what you bought the site for <laughs> you know you're on a winner. And um, a lot of that came from market growth. Yeah, we saw probably about 30% market growth from our initial projection in sale to, to that sale. Um, so that's really pushed the profit up for this one. Um, I did mention before, this this sort of thing you'd expect about a 24 month timeframe. This one's looking more like three years because there's a lot of delays along the way with building boom and just disruption from COVID and, and things running slow. Um, That's why the forecast returns there are higher than what I sort of mentioned before. You know, servicing person on this looking at like eighty-four thousand, then say that forty thousand and investor we would have targeted low thirties and now fifty-four. So that's that's you know, just an example of if you do profit share, there's there's an upside that's shared with everyone. Um, and yeah, at the bottom there, just an idea of the capital we needed, five hundred and seventy thousand. The borrowing, that's the peak borrowing. So with the construction loan as well. Um, yeah. One thing with servicing, and servicing is always a bit rubbery because how much are you actually contributing given in construction loan, they still factor in the forecast rent for the completed product, which contributes towards the servicing. So um, yeah, the the site loan is 80% of 951, whatever that would be. Um, and yeah, total cost about that 2.5 million mark
0: perfect yeah so fun. um one of the things when i just straight up look at this just this one picture um a lot of trees on the site is that a concern for you when you see a whole no, of um, trees?
2: one day the, the tree hoggers want to get us to sort of like victoria level where you can't cut down certain trees but it the council i live in actually tried to do that but the state government override them so in an Western Australia, you can just cut down whatever tree. Um, if you if, live in a more sorry, in a, sorry, I'll, I'll rephrase that. That's not quite right. In Perth, in the urban areas, you can just clear trees. You don't need permits. Wow. If you're yeah. in, I think if you're in like the forested areas, there might be some controls with some councils, but I've never come across it. But um yeah, so taking those trees down to the tree lot, I came in and. Well, I think we just out. used a demo guy, so took him out. Yeah. Um, yes. Street trees, very different story. Or You can possibly move and cut them, but I just assume they can't go because the council's going to give you a hard time. Um, yeah. And there are policies around when you build a new house. In most councils, there's policies around having to plant a new tree, at least one tree, to to give that uh, tree, tree canopy cover, which I think is quite a pragmatic way to deal with it. You can still... Build houses for people to live in, but then you landscape well so that you don't get this heat island problem that we've seen in the past with with bad development.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting, and obviously every state is different. Like South Australia, for instance, they have rules and regulations around things called significant and protected trees. So willow myrtle is a protected species, and gum trees are a protected species. And if there is a significant tree, which is a a, a, a a tree that it, anyway you don't who cares um the the <laughs> next thing that i noticed on this thing is um the driveway looks a bit steep so the the is the the lot sloping back
2: yeah so that, that just street a street visual... that it's on um uh, see how it looks like it's a two-story house at the back at the front yeah. it's only single story right so it gives you an idea of the slope um yeah what's interesting with this site and what really attracted me to it is it's on a I don't like to buy on busy roads. Uh, I prefer just uh, back streets as a general rule. In this instance, I made an exception. This is a, I don't know what you describe it. It's not a back street. It's the next step up. So it gets, it connect. yeah, it's a major road in the suburb, but you don't get trucks and much trucks and that kind of thing. Yeah. So the noise isn't that bad. And it is 800 metres from a very popular, uh, I guess you call it, village centre entertainment hospitality district you know it's uh, both in the street in Mount Lawley very well you know people want to be close to that so the amenity offsets some of that noise um, but noise in, is a consideration so what attracted me to this site is because it slopes down the front house has a, a solid wall at the front uh, which you couldn't mm. build now but it was built uh, in the past mm. when you could so that offers quite a bit of noise protection and then the new houses are down below the ground so they um, have noise protection because of that and it's also if you were on that the roof of that house and you turned around looking towards us, you can see city views. So um, it has a really nice aspect. So yeah, that driveway has some slope, but it's not there's rules around the slope of a driveway, but it's not um, so steep that it impact any of that. And then when you get yeah. to the back part where we built the houses, that's all fairly level.
0: Yeah, so when you when you do build these though, um, stormwater, do you have to pay more for um, pumping the stormwater and things up the hill? um, Oh, that's a great question.
2: This is sand soil in this part of Perth. A lot of Perth is sand in the flat bits. You go into the hills and it's clay, and if you're near rivers, you can get clay too. But sand means what we need is um, soak wells, which just control the flow of water into the ground. So they just specify the number of soak wells we need um yeah if this was clay probably couldn't develop it you're right what would you do how do you get the water up um it really I, like, because perth- pump,
0: pump it up the hill.
2: yeah well, it's interesting and in, if you are developing in perth clay, we have a lot of sand so with clay we don't councils don't always deal with it as well as that i don't know if they allow you to pump it yeah in other other parts of australia where everything's clay that's a common thing um yeah yeah you you'd in Perth, you'd be very careful when you're building in clay because check the costs and check the regulations. Because I do know one council in particular where they they tell you you can get the higher density as long as you solve the stormwater problem. But with something like that, I this I doubt they would say it's solvable, so they might not even let you develop.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I'm always very cautious of of bit like hills going down because of that because of that issue. One other thing that I've yeah. noticed here on this picture is you've got precedence for other development sites. So that's one little helpful tip for people is don't be the first person into the lot. Like don't be the first person that developed here. I mean, for like, you know, if you're kind of newish and and inexperienced, you want to have precedence there that someone else has already done what you're looking to do. So you can actually do it. So this one, based on what it looks like from the next door neighbors, you've got this front house and then you're putting two, And that's exactly what you're doing? You're putting two properties on on top of this?
2: No, what you said is a great tip because you don't want to be pioneering, but you always, in your due diligence, check with your town planning consultant. So you can't actually build them that way in this council. And this is a great example of that local planning policy thing I said. So under your state design codes, absolutely you could build that. But in this council, they introduced a local planning policy that requires you to have a minimum setback from the rear of the property, the idea being they want properties to have backyards. And if you look at what that is, I can't remember my head, it's a couple of metres, um, yeah, you no can't... Much. See that, yeah, see, I don't have the mouse, but see the, the furthermost, the rear one on the left hand. That's, that doesn't that's ridiculous. Literally, yard.
1: your neighbours like right next door. You step out and you've
2: got the... Got well, it the, has your- a side, the outdoor area is to the right, so it's got a side yeah. yard. It's still got an outdoor area. Um, yeah. But um, you, so you can't lay them out that way. What we had to do was lay them side by side at the mm-hmm. back and, and then one
0: here, have... One here. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and then have a big area in the middle so the cars could come in and, and reverse and all that. So um, we only could do that because we have a large block and it could def- if you just did the numbers on the yield of this, you could have potentially built another f- probably almost four smaller townhouses if you could lay them out the way that you do them next door, but you can't actually do that under the local planning policy. So um, oh, you know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Precedent is good because it shows you it can be developed and it also means that you're not the person disrupting the low-density suburb by being the first one putting all the new houses in because neighbours
1: hate that. get upset. And yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, we do, we're building a PPR at the moment and we're the NIMBY and one of our neighbours, well, she threatened, she said that she had to sell her house because of us and I thought, oh, yeah, whatever. And then she did sell her house and move. So, (laughs) yeah, they can get quite upset. So, um, so the final straw, you were the final straw.
0: That's it, yeah. (laughs) And the new neighbors
2: are lovely, they'll probably develop it someday themselves. So, yeah, they're on board. Um, so. Um, Wait,
0: what, one one thing, I mean, guys, throwing your questions and comments in in this this is a real deal that's happening right right now. So anything that you want to unpack. But one of the things that you mentioned to me was um, that you sold this house, so you're you haven't started to, like building this out. And how does that kind yeah, of we have, like, what yeah, I like is distra- it, you've got multiple exit strategies. Oh when you yeah, do this yeah,
2: sure.
0: So Can you talk to that.
2: So we sold that house before we started building um and the reason for that is building costs have gone up a lot so i think at that point it'd been about 30 percent increase from uh when we started the project pre-covid um so our servicing got a bit tight um couldn't quite borrow is enough to cover it so what do you yeah. do well in The planning code here, you can subdivide and get titles before you build. So we we do that just to give us multiple exit points. And we had a really obvious, really great exit point. Sell that front house. Well, yeah, we sold it for more than we bought the site for. So we had plenty of spare cash so we could put in some equity and reduce our borrowing or cover that overflow. And um, we also ended up with a bit of extra cash so we can also return some of that capital before we... Um, finish the project.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. That's um, Yeah. That's that's a, yeah. I, I think that's something that we we really should have spoken about. Um. With, with OPM and, and joint ventures is talking about in, uh, like the process of actually how you would lay out to the people the multiple extra strategies so that. People can gain greater, com- greater comfort in the, in the risk mitigation, but um, maybe round two. But Q and A, it, it is. It is. Uh, let, let's get to. It. We've probably got time for one or two questions. I yeah, we can risk- slip
2: ten minutes in. No, my life hasn't oh, doctor okay. on the board well, yet. So. Yeah,
1: <laughs> to, but let's see. This. Uh, let's see. Did you just? I, I'm just. So we, we actually had a couple of questions.
2: This is,
0: this is a great question when we're talking about the numbers. So sh- they're saying 54% return over 24 or 36 months is very yeah. different as a per annum return. Do you manage expectations for the money partners at the start? Yeah, okay. great do. question.
2: That is why I line it up with profit and mm-hmm. set the expectations. Pretty much everything I've said on this is that in development, you can't quite um, – the, the end date is always – and a risk there's things that we can control and things we can't control um so yeah remember our target return was 30% for this so we've um you yeah, know we're, we're pro- almost we if say we, the times increased by 50% and our returns nearly increased by 50% so yeah mm-hmm. that's all worked out fine um but yeah it's it's why i don't like to do the the fixed loan a loan with a fixed return date because I would have missed it on this, and and what do you do then? <laughs> you know, you yeah, you could potentially get stuck. And, and I've also, I, I just think if you've set up, you've taken a lot, and you've then set an expectation that it's not going to blow out. Um, now, Rambo, it's this type of blow is very, it's not very common. It's just we had COVID, which is an uncommon event. So, in terms of expectation as well, context is very important. I didn't have anyone turning around and thinking. This is all your fault and what you've been doing? Because we all live through COVID, you know. Um, you just you just have to run with it. it and uh, the I mean, yeah, the the
1: iron, I mean, the iron, I was going to say the, the, the iron curtain went up. I mean, shouldn't shouldn't say that's, that's oh yeah yeah. Um, See, for the W A viewers. <laughs> we
2: don't want to get into politics, but yeah, you know, there was some frustration around that um, yeah. on my end because we could not. We needed people to construction work we couldn't get them in so uh building times blew out um and and so on but yeah yeah, here we are we all got through it so it's all good
1: (laughs) and and, 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 and i think the um the really good thing that you mentioned you are is is the person holding the loan is is not the one paying the holding costs. that's actually that's factored that's paid by the by the project from or, or yeah so the that's probably giving the person with the who's who's borrowed the money um, more sort of assurance as well in, in the project, if I answer that correctly.
2: Yeah. I, look, I, this is an art. You can do it any way you like. I've, I've certainly met people where that role is that they do pay the costs, but they get a different type of return. They probably, I think they set that up. They gave them a percentage return on the money they borrowed. And yes, X percent of that went off to the hoarding costs and, it, and the net was theirs. And yeah. look yeah that's an interesting model how would you deal with it if if you had that arrangement right now we've had interest rates go up geez i'm even losing track what's it been 2.15 2%, uh, two percent 2.35 sorry.
1: went up to yesterday so it went up a, we've had yeah. five interest rate rises in a row the last three have been 0.5 percent
2: yeah yeah so yeah nearly two percent total um you know that arrangement. <laughs> the person getting the paying the interest is suddenly not getting as much net spent. return. So, yeah, it, this is very much an art. You have to think about your strategy, what you're doing, what's appropriate, and and try and think about scenarios so that it's kind of fair. What what you don't want is suddenly getting to a point where someone feels like they're eating. They've they've taking all the pain People and the other the partners deal. aren't
0: taking the yeah. pain, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Your, everyone's incentives are aligned together. You are just as motivated as they are to make that deal happen. Um, one quick thing I just wanted to mention on this return side of things is that um, this person who ever commented it made a really good point. A return of 54% per annum is amazing, um, but you have to split this over how long the period is. So if this deal takes 36 months, Per annum, that is 18% per year. Um, and if it's split by two years, that's 27% return. So if someone's saying to you, hey, I'm going to give you a 50% return, and then it's like, Every oh, that's over 36, 36 months, yeah, tell yeah. me what the time frame is. Or yeah. you would actually be better, rather than having a 54% return over three years, you'd be better having a 35% you return be over one year you may be better. Well, I mean... Because matters. because it's yeah. not...
1: Yeah, because then you factor in what is the risk involved in the deal? Because to get yeah, that fifty yeah, percent yeah. return in one year, what is the... Because, yeah, it's all, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. relative, right? It's all relative. I mean, but, just,
0: but just factor that in. If, if you hear these amazing returns, just figure out what the end... Over what period and ask for the per annum result.
2: And also, think about what your role is. So if standard for that type of thing in your market is... <clears throat> Thirty percent, and somebody's offering you fifty percent. You also have to ask why. And, and I don't think it's—I don't mean that, that people are trying to rip you off consciously, but I see in this OPM space a lot of new people offer high returns that they that it's going to be hard for them to achieve, and it's just because they're a bit inexperienced. They don't necessarily know whether they can hit it or not. Um, and and you know when I started. The first one I did what I my projections probably weren't quite what what I ended up with, which is okay. And that was with me with a fair bit of experience. But uh, it's very easy to do. And um it's just a sign that if you if say you're talking to four people and a bunch of the three of them were offering you a 15% per annum kind of rate and one was offering you 2025, 20, then yeah maybe it's that they're a bit green and it's not actually, it's only gonna work out to be 15% anyway. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Good, yeah. good. I
2: think yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's, the, we, we, we could even, you could even do a whole kind of, what are the key questions i ask a, ask somebody you're considering going into a joint venture with, but um, I mean, I've, I've, I've got some, um, yeah, this is kind of a question we, we did address, I think. I think Adam, Adam said that you prefer somebody with 150, I think, minimum. But- <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, under our model, that one, that case study, we said five seventy is what you needed. So the minimum was one fifty. So we probably got uh, under that scenario, we'd end up with what three, yeah, you know, four people, um, four, yeah, four partners, yeah. do plus
0: the servicing, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I think this is an interesting one. How, how do you, and we're not uh, we're not accountants and we're not lawyers. So, um, but but generally, how how do you sort of structure? It yeah,
2: great. I, I'm not, I'll, I, I'll just tell you how we do it, and but emphasize it's your accountant, your lawyer, mm. and your broker that you have to speak to mm. when you do this because when I first set one of these up, my accountant and lawyer both had very strong opinions about how finance works. Only my broker actually knew uh, because he's doing it <laughs> day in, day out. The other guys were seeing it often but not every single day. And uh we use a company structure. So the direct the servicing person becomes the director of that company and they provide the guarantee that way. Um yeah. you, you could uh, you you with a trust that and, anyway. um, yeah exactly um a trust I'm sure would work too but the reason we didn't want to use a trust is two things. One that's why with a company It is something called the Corporations Act, which provides standard set of laws that apply to companies. So when banks look at that, they already know that that's the case. When they look at a trust, each trust has a trust deed that specifies exactly how it works. So when they see a trust, they know they've got to look at the trust deed. And it's just way more hurdles to jump through. With this size project, we're on residential lending. So we don't have necessarily a very sophisticated person on the other end. Um, so we just want to avoid the complexity and so that was we picked a company for ease alone and also because of the corporations act it meant that there were certain rules that applied so from a governance perspective it gave investors certain rights by default which we felt was just fair so that they knew there were ways to to take control if things weren't if i wasn't performing or whatever Yeah, it's all black and white and all set out already rather than having to go through trust deeds and spend more money on lawyers, figuring all that stuff out.
1: Yeah. That's, that's, that's the thing I, I really, um, I respect and appreciate with you, Adam. You, you, you are, you, whilst you're, you're clear and you're directive, you're, you're also fair. You're, you're not somebody out Well, i just a, a, a couple of conversations. With you. It looks like you're the type of person who you, you aim to consider other people's perspectives and, and, um, and positions, not, not to sort of purely, uh, focus on your own interests, So, which, which I think is... Yeah, thanks. Something. Yeah,
2: I, I, that's, I think that's really key with OPM. If you're doing this, you're a group going on a journey together and it's if it's fair and people are aligned, when these unexpected things come up, you can ride through them. It's when somebody feels like they're being ripped off that you can get conflict. And we don't want conflict. We want um, successful projects and happy endings i suppose you know? yeah you don't want thing if a development falls apart halfway through then you um you're in trouble because you've spent money but you haven't necessarily got that value back yet in terms of its market value
0: yeah. love it um question here with builders fall folding and materials cost on the rise how do you mitigate the risk here
2: yeah that's a great question so firstly i've got my preferred builder and i He's a good friend of mine. I was in his office today. I can work out of his office. I know all his staff members. Uh, he encourages me to talk to them directly if it's relevant. So I know what his company's is doing. Um, so builder selection, crucial. Secondly, how you set up your project and your strategy to make sure if your builder fails, you're not going down too. So I've, worked, I've had a project where a builder went broke. And the biggest risk is that because you're building under this kind of resi build, you're doing stage payments, so you pay fixed amounts at certain milestones. For cash flow, the builder always has to be ahead. So when they invoice you, the amount for the work done is less than what you've paid. Um, that's in a normal market. When the prices are going up, we've got some jobs where the builder's making a loss because the price went up so quickly. So if he went broke partway through, and I go to a new builder, it means I need, I'm going to, the cost of build is going to be higher, to finish, going to be higher than the net of, of what I paid versus what I had afterwards. So what that means is your bank's approved money for the loan, as if your builder goes broke, you're going to have to tip in cash to get it finished. So you need to be very, um, make sure that you can keep the thing going. And most uh, all states have some form of insurance around this that is drawn when you build. So if the builder goes broke, the consumer has a level of protection in WA. As long as you're building less than four, this is why we only build part of why we only build two or three. Mm. You can be covered for up to a hundred thousand dollars in cost overall. So yeah, that's a
1: little bit of protection there.
2: Yeah, well, these builds are higher in townhouse, about 500000 each. So that's 25% buffer. Um, and then the other thing while we love to keep the houses and renovate them is we add value pretty quickly and we subdivide and have individual titles. So if we got stuff and we didn't have the money, we can still sell, with, sell a house if we haven't sold it, uh, sell a block of land. Um, we're not... Typically, if you think of the value curve of how much you spend on a development as you go and how much the property is worth, we don't spend a lot of time with the property being worth less than the amount we've spent because we've added value quickly for the renovation. Um, That's probably a 10-minute thing to really explain what I mean by that, but maybe I'll just simplify it. Just think about um, what happens at what At what point, if your project ended, would you owe the most – money compared to the lowest market value and typically it's if you've knocked a house down it would be lock up when you get to lock up that structure might be worth something if you put it on the market someone might pay you something for the land plus the structure before that i don't think many people would Um, and so you've essentially you've paid all this money to the builder that hasn't had it added any value um so yeah that's your that's your real danger point yeah yeah here we go but this
1: is a bit of last question and it goes to david he is a regular viewer um and a great supporter so i love your support dave keep going um so he just says how do you get resi lending instead of development lending do you delay g so there's two questions there so resi i can yeah. probably answer this one but resi lending you basically you just have to keep it under a certain number i imagine isn't it like if you go over it goes into yeah,
2: certainly no broker but the uh, the key for us has been the type of property and the number we build. Yeah. Um, and it's not all, it only falls in with some lenders, but um, that's why I work with a broker. He knows who they are. The second part yeah. around GST, um, this is a good question. Any form of value add, renovation, subdivision, development, talk to your accountant and get the advice because cool. you you. You're likely to pay GST and and capital gains tax if it's in your own name and so on, right? And my view with the with tax, I know there's ways to do things in your own name and try and string that along. I think let's face it, you're making money, you expect to pay tax. I like to sail down the middle road. I don't want to be on the bleeding edge because I don't want to suddenly find out the ATO wants me to pay my whole heap of money. And for us in developing, we're creating a new product, we're paying GST. Uh, we're not trying to dodge that at, at all. We pay the GST and we claim the credits as appropriate. We do our BAS with our bookkeepers and um, it's all, all black and white. So if the ATO ever came to audit us, we should be pretty close and we don't have any problems.
1: And and you're probably, you're probably doing the GST claiming on a quarterly rather than annual basis, I imagine.
2: Yeah, that's right. You could even do it monthly. We don't bother with that. But, um, yeah, quarterly is a, a, a good level for us, yeah.
0: Yeah, how many and other developers thing, um, do you? And... Oh, sorry. How, how, how many developers do you see that don't claim the GST credits? Or
1: surely all of them do.
2: Well, sure. uh, uh, okay. So I'm not an accountant, so you can check this yourself. But a lot of this also comes down to intention. So if you mm-hmm. were going to hold, then I know one person who hold, holds holds the stuff for longer term, so she won't claim the GST, but. Oh. If you hold for long enough, you won't pay GST on the sale. So that's why she won't claim the GST when she builds, because she intends to hold for long enough not to pay it on the sale. Because because yeah. you wouldn't want to you may if you you can't double dip, right? If if you no. the ATL would no. ask you to pay it back and they ask you to pay interest on the lost years that they didn't have that money.
1: Yeah, 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 that's a, that's a great. Um, I mean, somebody's asked a follow up, but we, we, it is date night. So let's, um let's, I, I think people <laughs> yeah. absolutely love this session. And, and, um, yeah, if, if your projects are, how does this look? Yeah. I, people are just, they're they really jump, They want to hear about the development rather than the OPM.
2: What do they want? Yeah. To yeah. Well, look, I'm an active member on the group now. You yeah. know, I, I think I've been commenting on stuff every day. So when you guys post the video, if people have questions put on the Facebook group and, I'll I'll answer them as best I can, and I'm sure other people in the group will chime in. So, yeah, we'll um, get you your answer one way or the other.
1: Really, really appreciate the value you've added uh, here, Adam, and just yeah, the the time you've taken as well. We said we said an hour, an hour and a half, and we've gone nearly yeah, happy.
0: yeah. We 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 went over a little bit, but I think this is uh, there's a lot of detail in here um, that you've covered off that that people don't hear everywhere else. Um, and I, I appreciate if you're digging in and um, giving us that detail because it, the, in developing, especially the the key is in the detail. Um, So thank you very much for that. But but how can people reach reach out to you? Because I imagine you you've got investors that you're looking to get, um, borrowing capacity partners, and um, amazing members of your community that you've got as well. Can you talk to uh, Can you talk to that? Yeah, definitely.
2: If uh, the easiest way to get in touch with me, if you've seen this through the Facebook group, is I'm a member, so um, feel free to send me a message. Um, We run a per specific Group for property developers called Perth Property Developers. Feel free to jump on there if you want to know more about developing in Perth. We um, post videos and have an active community um, similar to Oz Property Investors. And um, yeah, that's probably the best two ways. Send me a message if you have any specific questions. Um, if you're interested to find out how it goes with working with me, then um, yeah, get in touch and I can always have a chat to you from there.
1: Can I can I drop your website, Adam? Is that okay?
0: yeah sure uh, it, like not salesy you are you like oh i didn't even think well, about thing, that i wasn't even thinking about that well
2: one <laughs> thing for me i i'm selective with who i work with right it's got to be a, the right fit so i don't i don't have i don't expecting hundreds of cold calls people if you watch this and you're interested feel free to reach out and then it's all about just having a chat and if it's something that works for you and works for me then we can explore where it goes
1: yeah yeah Appreciate that, and appreciate your time, and yeah, enjoy your um, enjoy your Wednesday night. And we'll, I'm sure, we'll yeah. Be in thank touch. you,
2: thanks, guys. It's been awesome being on. So Good. thanks for reaching out, and um, I'll be staying active on your group. So I'm sure you'll see me in the comments section anyway.
0: Let's do it. Thanks, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Jeff. Let's go buy a property. Bye. See you later. Hear more interviews and share your story with some of Australia's top property experts and commentators now by joining the Oz Property Investors Facebook group with over 25,000 property investors so we can all become better property investors together.